0: Welcome to a new episode of DevSecOps Talks. Uh, today's episode is going to be about unicorns. It's me, Matthias. It's Andre and Julian, and today we also have a guest with us, Ian. But first, Andre, how did we get here?
1: All right. So some time ago, I was wondering about the unicorns. Science, clever people around me telling that now we have containers, soon enough, we're going to have huge kernels. And that's not happening. I, I don't see anything happening around me. And we also started a podcast, so I thought that the podcast might be actually a good excuse to connect with people who work with the technology and get their brain out and get a, gain, gain an understanding of what's going on in the industry. Thus, I went on LinkedIn, searched through the different hashtags, and eventually just left a message on my LinkedIn feed saying, Do I know anyone in my network who wants to talk about unicorns? helps they use the hashtag so people can discover it? And I was glad. But eventually, we got Ian coming in and uh, saying, Andre, if you want to talk unicorns, you can talk to me. And thus, we say hello to Jan. Thank, thank you for <laughs> joining us. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, where you're
2: heading.
3: Sure. Uh, so, name's Ian Iberg. I'm uh, founder over at Nano VMs and uh, based in Oakland, California. We have an office in the city that nobody's been to for a while, but um, but yeah, so that's that's where we're at. So. <laughs> Okay, so, and uh, what is your exposure to Unicorn? So I've, I've been working in the ecosystem for, you know, five years or so. Um, I was, uh, I got interested in it about five years ago when I started reading a lot of the white papers on the subject. And it just kind of, you know, <clears throat> you know, uh, just kind of took over. <laughs> and uh, at the time I was writing a lot of Go. Um, in the language Go. And I was wondering why nobody had read in a Go Unikernel yet. Turns out, you know, it's hard. <laughs> so uh, so we went out and had the first Go Unikernel made. And booting that up on KVM for the first time just kind of blew me away. I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. This is the future. And so just kind of started focusing in on, um, you know, doing everything that was necessary to, to bring the ecosystem to life. So...
2: So that's interesting so you were just playing with it, and suddenly now you are running a company based on 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 that what what surprised you the most about uh Unica?
3: yeah um you know it's it's interesting because it's it's a much wider space than a lot of people kind of think it is um it, it, there's there's so many different organizations looking at it for various different use cases. Um, you know, like the telcos, for instance, look at it for, um, you know, serverless and latency, you know, NFE projects. Then you have companies like Arm and Baidu, they're looking at it from, you know, Edge. And you have people like me who looked at it from a security perspective. Um, you know, there's there's all these different organizations that are, you know, kind of going different directions with it. Um, and so it's uh, just, just knowing like how, how much different interest there is out there. That's kind of under the radar. I, I found pretty interesting.
2: And if you had to explain uh, what are unikernals to someone uh, that absolutely has never heard the terms, how would you describe it?
3: Yeah. So there's lots of different unikernel characteristics. And I think, you know, now that there's well over 10 different implementations with all their individual takes on like what it is you know what what i tend to say is that you know we run one application one and only one application in a virtualized environment so compared to something like linux which is inherently multiple processes running by multiple users the unikernel kernel is really just focused on running that one application um by itself um, and so that's that's kind of the, uh, the end result. Now there's, there's lots of different nuances. Like some people were like, Oh, well, you know, this, uh, uh, we run it in VM. We don't run it in VM. Um, we, uh, we have a syscall boundary. We don't have a syscall boundary. There's lots of different like little takes like that. But I would say in general, you know, just that focus on running that one application at a time is, is, is kind of the, uh, the main
1: characteristic that you'll see in all the projects. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, what you've been saying about people finding that unikernels are hard reminded me a lot what happened 10 years ago with the the Linux containers. Mm -hmm. Working with LXC, wasn't that straightforward for the regular folks. And then we had uh, Docker coming along and uh, inventing the tooling around LXC to make it more accessible for for developers, for instance, to, and their promise was and still is that you package your application once, you run it anywhere. And um, Jan sent me over a link to the tool that they developed that is called Ops. And uh, when, I, when I read through the documentation, it felt like I'm, again, back 10 years and I'm reading about the Docker for the first time. So I felt a lot of... Parallels in there. So it felt that Ops would simplify the work with unicornals for me as a typical developer. So I don't need to understand all under the hood stuff that's going on there. And I can just be a user of the technology. Is it, uh, am I getting it right here? Is it-
3: what, what it yeah is. yeah i mean that was that was definitely a very large problem in the ecosystem for a long time was you, you know you would look at projects like grunt kernel and stuff like that and you know to to actually use some of that software um you, you basically had to be a kernel engineer at the end of the day um you had to cross compile you know code bases that maybe you weren't familiar with languages you weren't familiar with you know concepts that you weren't familiar with and so it's just All three of those things just made it super, super hard to use. And so, you know, you could read that academic white paper and see like the low, you know, single digit latency boot times and you could see, oh, look at all the security reduction. That's interesting. But then as an end user, it was just impossible to like um, use the software. And so we kind of knew that that was like, you know, public enemy number one in terms of adoption was just making it. As dead simple to use, and in our eyes, like it's not, it's not there until even non-developers can, you know, use it. So, say you're a DBA or some some other person that doesn't really actually code, um, you know, they should be able to spin up those applications and and use it without having to uh, do any code.
1: So, right. Well, so when I'm reading through the documentation, I, for instance, I'm doing the. The basic example that uh, describes the Go program consisting of one file, then the basic example tells me to compile it into the executable, and then I do Ops run my binary, and let's assume I'm running on Linux. What would happen then? So,
3: yeah, ops, um, Ops actually doesn't do, like, a ton of work. Um, what, what, what we did was making it easier to use with the underlying hypervisor. So in most cases, that's QMU. Um, and then uh, also making it easy to deploy to the clouds. So all, all the different public clouds are supported. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, like if you're just running locally, all Ops is doing is creating a disk image out of your application. And so this is a disk image you can take to any hypervisor and boot on. Um, and then it'll orchestrate QMU to run locally if you want to look, run locally. Um, but that's, that's basically the two functions it provides. Um, yeah.
1: It felt that it will download something from the internet, something that you call image. Right? Yeah. So it, it, so
3: it, it is like a, it, it kind of depends on what you're using. So in the go example, um, you know, Go will produce a single binary, single ELF binary, and so what we can do is we can stick that um, onto the disk image. But if it's, say, say it's something like Ruby or Python or one of the interpreted languages, um, then uh, it, you know, for that, we don't really expect the end developer to use the uh, to uh, provide their own interpreter. So we we give them a package that we say, hey, this is
1: a known good interpreter. And this works. All right, Jan. So you, you, now I see what's going on um, locally. So we have um, an image that we load our binary on top, but um, you also mentioned the cloud. And I think that might be a typical confusion point for people, since everything I read about unicorns on the internet, it says it's a single process, special purpose, Operating system, if you like, for running like just just your application on top of the hypervisor. And AWS doesn't let me to access Nitro hypervisor, so I can How can I run it on AWS? And that was a big question for me. So, how do you, how
3: yeah, do you and um, you know, don't feel alone. You're uh, it, it's it's a extremely mis, uh, common misconception. Um, a lot of people think that. You go to Amazon and you have to install like a Kubernetes on top and then and then you run the stuff on top. And um, we kind of go the complete opposite direction. What we say is like, hey, if you're deploying to a public cloud like Amazon or Google or Azure, you know, any of them, um, they already provide you all these primitives to work with, the storage, the networking, the security, they provide all this. And so why not just use it? <laughs> like there, there's no need to put more complexity on top. Um, so when we deploy to say Amazon um, and, and you do like ops image create, we're creating an EC2 instance, um, like, well, an AMI, we're creating an AMI out of your application. And then we boot that as an EC2 instance. And so that EC2 instance does not have Linux at all running on it. It's literally just your application. Um, and so that's, that's the big difference there is that we offload a lot of what people would consider uh, orchestration, we offload all of that to the cloud. Um, and so, so it just becomes like much more simpler to deploy and push out. Cool.
1: Uh, usually I, I think like first time when I heard that, my head exploded. And Julian is making signs <laughs> that he's exploding as well. Yeah. Signs uh, when you have when you take a typical software modernization project. People were running on uh, virtual machines. Nowadays they usually would go with the containers, and together with containers they would have to adopt some kind of orchestration uh-huh. service. It would be a like Kubernetes. Would be ECS. Would be like hardcore Nomad. But here, what you get is you get your AMI, the very basic primitives that you got from Amazon for more than 10 years, 15 years, probably now. You have auto-scaling groups that technically replace your orchestrator. So you're using all the primitives that you already know. Then you have load balancers that connects to auto-scaling group. Yeah. So you get your ingress. But technically, you're getting all those primitives that are already there, that you're already using, and you're cutting off the big level of complexity out of it, and that only that, like, leave security improvements alone. Feels very compelling to me if yeah. I would work with someone for whom building secure system is a priority. Yeah there is like no packages to install, nothing to update. So, and, and I guess the people would ask, well, all right, so I have my application running as a virtual machine linked together with kernel. How do I debug the thing? Probably people ask you a lot about that. So, things like logs, yep. metrics.
3: Yeah, and, and, and just to clarify before we jump into that, no, nothing's stopping you from using, like a say, a Nitro instance on Amazon and pulling out your own hypervisor. It's not, it's not common whatsoever in the cloud, but um, it is an option if you absolutely have to or want to do that. And then Google also has nested virtualization instances uh, to do the same sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so so in terms of like debugging and metrics and logs, um, you know, a lot of that tooling just kind of works out of the box um logs you know if, if we talk about that for a second um i i group those into basically two camps one is you have software say a small blog where you just don't care <laughs> and for that um you can just shove it out through uh the serial interface where you know ops logs instance that will you know, uh, grab all your logs and, and you can just view them as is. So that's for software where you don't, you don't necessarily care too much. Um, it's there, but low traffic websites, that sort of thing. Um, if you have an actual higher traffic website or if it's something that's more, um, you, you know, more, more serious, chances are you're already using something like Elasticsearch or Splunk or, you know, paper trail or any of these innumerable number of logging solutions out there. And so in that case, what we say is keep using it. Um, you can ship all your logs out through the syslog interface. Um, so, you know, I, there's examples on our website where you just, here's your syslog address, the port, and you just ship it straight out. Um, that's the easiest, most straightforward way to do, um,
1: in a production setting. Um, Right. So then, uh, I have my application compiled together with the Linux kernel, and I need to tell the thing that address how for for syslog. syslog or
3: okay. Oh yeah. So for for syslog, you know, um, pretty much every language has that capability to kind of say, "Hey, um, you know, instead of uh, well." At, at, at the end of the day, you have, like, say your, um, you know, print line type of logging, um, and that just sh- ships it out to standard out or standard error, right? And then you have other ways of saying, hey, this application is going to go to var log, syslog, slash whatever. Um, usually that's done with something like systemd or something like that. Um, and then, it, it, you know, the other way is that you explicitly tell your application, and every language has, has this API, uh, where you're saying my syslog is listening on this host at this port, um, ship all the logs out to there.
1: So, right, I, I see. So I basically do it on uh, application log level, right. not on operating yeah. system level. I don't consider it right. operating system level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for metrics, I can guess, I can explore like a Prometheus.
3: Yeah, Prometheus level. would be a very common way of doing that because that's already applicable inside the application. And so then you just, you know, expose all any metrics you want to expose and come scrape them. But stuff like New Relic and Datadog, I mean, those clients work. Um, uh, There's there's a thousand, just like logging, there's a
1: thousand different APM type of solutions out there. Um, But to use like Datadog, do I need to compile Datadog
3: agents? So you would, Yeah, you would have an agent inside your app that ships out those metrics.
1: Uh Oh, so then I I have to use some kind of SDK. Right, right. And so... It's not like a Datadog agent binary and compiling it into the image because I cannot have multiple processes running. So it should be still part of the application through mm -hmm. SDK. Right, right. And then, yeah, and so there's...
3: Sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
0: sorry. Can you have multiple uh, processes running at the same time? Or is no, time so
3: that's that's actually one of the key architectural um, constraints that we impose is it's it's single process. So that uh, what that means is we can have as many threads as your application wants. You know, if you're using a language like Java or Go or Rust or something like that, um, if you need more performance and you want to add more threads, More the merrier. Um, But processes, they're inherently single process systems to begin with. And that's actually the key architecturally, that's the key point because that's what gives you the performance, it's what gives you the speed, um, gives you all these other benefits. Uh, Just to kind of drill into this, just to kind of show how important it is um, if we go to Amazon, we boot up a Ubuntu or Debian instance, something like that. Even without you installing a single thing, there's like 100 processes already running um, on it. And that, that, even on like an EC2 small, which is only one thread, you know, you have 100 different processes all fighting for that thread at a time. It's an illusion that all those programs are running at the same time. What's happening is the CPU is like switching between all 100 of them so fast that you can't really see. But to a computer, it's still pretty slow. And by eliminating that and saying, hey, we only have this one process, um, you, you know, you remove a lot of that context switching immediately and your application inherently performs a lot better. So when people are asking, like, how do you get this performance boost? It's merely architecture. It has We, we didn't write a magic algorithm or anything like that. It's, it's just architecture.
2: And uh, talking about yeah. ar- architecture, I-, I had one question rela- regarding the compute density. Mm-hmm. So, if, if I uh, rent uh, four gigabyte VM to run my application, how can I right size okay. the VM? How do I know how much I use inside that VM? Because there is no operating system, I cannot really, you know, poke around or anything. So, how, what would be your recommendation for actually finding the the perfect cost to usage ratio?
3: Yeah. You know, it's going to depend heavily on, like, A, what language you're using, and B, kind of what your application does. Um, You know, just to clarify on the no operating system, um, that gets thrown around quite a bit. But every single unikernel out there actually is an operating system, just not a general purpose operating system like we're used to. But you still have all these operating system functions like paging and you know access management and just all sorts of networking and there's a there's a lot of stuff that goes into an operating system, so it's um it it, it could be a small one, it could be specialized, but it still very much is an operating system uh, and so uh yeah, to go back to your right sizing question, um, you know. If we look at languages, for instance, again, if you're using an interpreted language like a Ruby, Python, JavaScript, all those are inherently single process, single thread to begin with. So you should take that into account when you're thinking about it because um, you're not going to uh, scale uh, vertically the exact same way that you might on Linux. Um, for those types of languages, you're gonna wanna scale horizontally. So you have, you know, maybe five uh, Ruby interpreters on the smallest instance size behind a load balancer. That's one way to do it. Um, A language like Go or Rust that has native threads, then you could scale vertically if you wanted to. Um, On Google, they have instances that have 384 threads available. So that's a a lot of firepower (laughs) to to go that way. I don't even know of anybody who's actually using those instances. I'm sure people are, but it's just... You know, it's, that's just uh, one way to go there. Uh, you know, in terms of memory, uh, one, one of the interesting things about the cloud instances is I, is I think, y- you know, there's um, not too many of the public clouds actually have um, kind of dynamic adjustments in terms of memory and CPU. I know Google does, but m- most of the others, you know, it's like, here's one thread and, and four gigs of RAM or here, here's two threads and 16 gigs of RAM. It's very um, flat and fixed. So I think there's room, you know, in the future for that to be a lot more fluid
1: than, than it is today. All right. This is something that I discussed with, um, my team is today. There is a Fargate on AWS, which is container as a service, but if the micro VMs as a unicorns, take they call that there will be a big hunt for the t3a mm-hmm. no, micro those instances like for the goal languages yeah. so there will be a lot of demand for those since you don't need as much resources and you also mentioned the performance improvements yeah, do, you, do you have any any numbers to share when it comes to yeah but- yeah, so again,
3: it kind of depends on what you measure. But to give you an idea, um, both ops.city and nanos.org are go unikernels running on Google Cloud right now. Um, they can, uh, you know, on Google, we routinely see benchmarks of like 2x more uh, requests per second. Um, on Amazon, it's 3x more you, you might wonder what the difference is. And um, there's, there's a number of differences. One is you have um, different underlying hypervisors. So Google is entirely built on KVM. Amazon used to be built on Xen. Their newer instances use a modified version of KVM. Uh, there's different networking adapters, like Amazon has made their own silicon. Um, so they have like little ASIC networking offloading uh, coprocessors. And so there's there's little things like that that can um, change the performance and so forth. But yeah, in general, like like if you just boot up the latest Debian that Google shows you and, and compare that to um, you know a, uh, a Google Unikernel, exact same Go version, exact same application, we're, we're going to push 2x more on that. Um, you know, we've benchmarked MySQL running faster and a whole bunch of other Redis running faster. Um, so, so yeah, it did, it, it, it depends on a variety of things though.
0: But what, what kind of application are we talking about? you running here. You're talking about MySQL, web pages, Do you run almost anything on them or it's like, in- yeah.
3: So, you know, our, uh, our bread and butter are kind of web applications. So what, I think um, maybe a lot of your listeners, you know, work in. Um, uh, so uh, that's, that's what we're running. You know, I'll, I'll throw out stuff that we don't run. Like, uh, you know, we're solely focused on server side applications. So if it's a debt, if it's a desktop GUI type of thing, we don't touch that at all. Yeah. Um, there's uh, it you know, something like Postgres, which is inherently multi-process, shared memory, IPC, like, classic System 5 ABI type of programming from the early 90s. Um, stuff like that, we don't touch. Now, we've we've done minor ports to some software where people absolutely want to run a piece of software, and it's written in, in that style. And so what we'll do is we'll come in and we'll turn all the processes to threads and we'll kind of fix um, other various places. So it, it's not saying that it can't be done in cases like that. It's just not something that we... Really dive into that much.
0: But but you're really saying here that I can change my
3: GraphQL server, my Node.js server, and my MongoDB database and run. Yeah, so all three of those things that you just mentioned, we could run as unikernels with no
1: porting um, today. Wow. Actually uh, now talking to the guy who is uh, building, building like Indie Maker. Yeah. And uh, he is building a web app that you that you could log in, put in your details and your house characteristics, and that will build your report about solar efficiency. Yeah. If you are to install panels, if you are to install the battery packs, what we, what is your time to for ROI? Like, what is the angle you need to put your yeah. panels at? And funny thing in sweden during the night uh, during the winter which is basically a night <laughs> in order to be efficient you have the angle have to be 80 percent because the sun almost doesn't yeah, show yeah, yeah. From, from the horizon anyhow and uh he's building the calculation parts in elixir and uh we agree that tomorrow I did so much advertisement that tomorrow we will be porting his application to unicornals and running running that on AWS. Yeah. And for him, that was very exciting. So he's kind of new to AWS. He's a Heroku type of person. I just want to push and run it like yeah. a lot of developers are. And I started to explain to him, well you could do containers and we can put it to ECS We might move some parts to Lambda and then it's mm. kind of <laughs> Lambda is kind of easy to understand for developers as my code I just yeah. run it there. Um, there is a Python part that really well fits into the Lambda pattern we did that today but for the primary backend where he has a lot of computation going on the Lambda is not exactly fitting and uh, it's like an elixir so we will try to do it in unicorns and we'll see how that goes. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. And um, now look, so we spoke about running it locally. We spoke about running that in the cloud. And uh, if we continue our Docker analogy, like um, ops for unicornals as a Docker for Linux containers, what uh, Docker bring with with, is the ability to distribute. The images, right? So you could use Dockerfile and Docker build command to build your own image, and then you had Docker Hub very inspired by GitHub to distribute what you built. Yeah. And I think that was a big big push for the Docker which made people to use it. Science now if you want to run Postgres, you don't need to download the binary, you don't need to compile the libraries, you don't need to configure much, you just download the image that was built by, by some other clever guy yeah. who might be smarter than you with databases <laughs> and here we go just in the second you have a database running on your laptop and you can easily scratch it by removing the, the container and image. Do you have the capabilities of like building locally sharing that or is it done in some other
3: Yeah, way? Yeah, so it's, um, it's the same sort of idea. Uh, there's, there's a few kind of tweaks that we've we've done mainly just to fit the, the deal. We, we do have this concept of a package hub. Um, I, I compare it to like AppG, basically. You can app install um, your software. Uh, right now it's it's all packages that we've um, created ourselves, but that's only because we haven't really had time to kind of create like an open um, uh, hub of sorts. Uh, it's, it's something on our list. It's just not something we've done. However, um, people can create their own packages too. So it's, it, we just don't have that centralized distribution part yet. Um, but the, uh, but yeah, the package at the end of the day is basically just a tarball and um, it has, you know, the binaries and libraries and stuff like that in it. It actually isn't the disk image. We still build the disk image on the fly. And by, you know, when, when I say building it on the fly, it happens in like a second. So it's, 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 it's not like it's, um, you know, doing a lot. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, you can take that package. And, you know, typical use cases are, again, if you're using like an interpreted language like Node or Python, um, we don't expect people to come up with that stuff themselves. There's lots of random stuff that if you're not building these packages, you might not know what to include. So when it comes to things like DNS, you might not know that you need libresolve and libnss and lib. NSS and lib this and you know all that, and so um, that's kind of up to the package maintainer to do. Um, but then there's other things like databases, Redis, MySQL, stuff like that, Nginx um, So, so all that, you know, again, we don't expect people to compile; they should just be able to use. So,
1: right. No, oh, uh, hold on. Um, you also mentioned that I see that uh, in Ops CLI you have images. Mm-hmm. You have packages. Help me understand the business. Yeah, and it's
3: just just to clarify. I mean, it's part of the ops um, terminology and experience has just been something that we've slowly kind of iterated on throughout. So, so I I wouldn't say that you could expect everything to remain the same in the future. It's just kind of like what's there right now. But yeah, so packages um, at the end of the day, packages uh, are just. A tarball there. There's a file with you know whatever is needed to actually run that piece of software, um, and so it is something that we distribute to get people up and running quickly. Uh, images, on the other hand, are actual disk images, and so at the end of the day, that's just one that's just one file that you can take. You can throw it on a hypervisor, and then boom, um, up goes your application. And so, d- depending on what you're deploying to. Um, images can be in different file formats. So if you're using like Hyper V, you might be using a VHDX file type, and you know if you're uh, pushing to KVM, maybe it's just like a raw uh, file type. So the file types can be a little bit different, um, and so uh, that's that's one reason why they get built on demand. But again, if you're if you're transferring from one file type to another, and your your base image is like 10 megs. That's it's basically instantaneous. So
1: right. So basically package is something prepackaged so I could put my application on and make an image. Yeah. It.
3: So so I I guess one thing
1: to kind of dive in and maybe
3: explain why we just don't distribute images um, is because there's all this customization that goes on. Um, config files, environment variables, um, you, you know, all all sorts of customization that goes on. And so, whenever you customize that, um, we rebuild a new image. And this is this is actually something that's distinctly different from like containers, for instance. Is every single time I push the deploy button, you're getting a new, brand new image um, every single deploy. Um, there's not a there's there's not a thing where we come in and we just like modify that image. Um, so that's, that's something to kind of keep in mind
1: there. Um, yeah. All right. It feels like if I'm stretching the Docker terminology, maybe I shouldn't. Does so image in all is like a container? So something that you instantiate yeah. out of the Docker image and here, the package is like a Docker <laughs> image.
3: <laughs> maybe, maybe the terms could use some work. That's for sure.
2: <laughs>
1: no, just you know how the human brain works. You build up the patterns you know, and you try to compile it into mm-hmm. the some foundation that you already acquired, and you're trying to bring it there. And yeah. yeah, just just the name. It.
2: I, I'm i I really like the name uh, Ops. I think I heard a few times during this talk that Ops doesn't do much. <laughs> ops, it like, uh, I, I, I would like a T-shirt yeah. or something. <laughs> I have to send it to some yeah. people and I'm sure they would be very happy to hear about that. Um, it, where does the name... Come from? Well,
3: I mean, it comes from, you know, DevOps and Ops systems and uh, things, of, things of that nature. And, you know, to be clear, like, I've worn that hat in many different roles in, you know, previous life, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It, that's the other thing is, like, having lived that role, you know, a lot of us we want to do things the easiest way possible. We're going to automate ourselves out of like as much crap as we can. So like that's, that's where a lot of this motivation actually does come from is, is just having lived that life and and wanting to make things easier, better and safer and faster.
1: So. Yeah. Another another thing I like about it, I, I speak a lot about uh, immutable infrastructure. Mm And unique kernels is immutable infrastructure, yeah. ultimate <laughs> immutable infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. You, get it, you cannot get more immutable no. than that. There is nothing to change. There is no way to get in. No. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing from yeah. that perspective. And I'm going to inc- start to incorporate more, maybe mentioning ops in uh, more in my talks, saying that, yeah, there is a chance for you if you want to push your immutable infrastructure to the next level. There seems to be a tooling now that you might be using. However, every time when we pick up a new tool, right, we want to do a little bit of evaluation about who is behind the tool, who built it, what type of support I can get, if it's open source, what's the community, how many committers, uh, how many maintainers. So you, you mentioned that you have a company, right? So how, how do you do Money. How do we make money?
3: Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, our existing customers, we provide support plans uh, mainly to is, is kind of the main source mm-hmm. of revenue we have there. And so it's, you know, that's everything from um, I found a bug and I need help fixing it. And I don't write kernel oh. level C code. So <laughs> need I, I need somebody else to come in and, and work on it. Um, feature development. So there's times where, you know, we haven't thought of something or somebody just is used to doing something a certain way. And we have a different opinion on stuff, but they're like, Hey, can you, can you prioritize the, uh, the development of this feature? So, you know, there's, there's support plans for that. Um, but we also sell uh, Nano C2, which is kind of like a downloadable um, uh, a graphical administration tool. So making things like deploy workflows easier and things of that nature. And then we also, you know, we had talked about metrics earlier. Uh, we also have this thing called a uh, radar, and so that does everything from crash dumping to collecting uh, various metrics um, and, and doing other things of that nature. So, so we have a variety of ways to engage with uh, people that need need support. Um, but just to be clear, you know, both Ops and Nanos are Apache licensed, um, so mm-hmm. you, you know it's 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 open source, it's free as in beer, it's free as in you know speech. So.
1: Okay, well, I see. Well, hopefully you are learning from the Docker lessons because <laughs> those guys they screw up themselves with the business model. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's I mean they they basically committed
3: committed Q last January. Um, so uh, I don't know. I think I think they're more focused on the desktop experience now. Um, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh it, no, I mean it, at, at the end of the day, you know, n- the company you know needs money, right? So <laughs> yeah. it, it, engineers uh don't uh, don't come cheap,
1: especially where we live. So That's yeah. true. Yeah, you should sh- you should be considering having someone remote, I mean, right? That's a new
2: life for now.
1: That's yeah. so.
2: I would love to hear if you have any comment or like um, how, how does your customer like pass an audit from you know from the government or some some institution because I've been in a few mm-hmm. of those and I would say that having an immutable infrastructure at that level would have helped. Yeah,
3: so I can give you two different use, uh, use cases where this actually happened in real life. Um, one was there's this company called uh, Paywax. We actually throw them up on our main page, and they mentioned that um, they so they do credit card processing, and they were able to um, get past their uh, their PCI compliance level one with it. And so when you think about like where this might come into the use case well, when you don't have usernames or passwords, so you don't have to rotate passwords (laughs) or you can't like, or, um, you know, there's requirements like audit logs. It's like, well, how do you audit log something when I can't even have like a command be ran on that system? Um, You know, a a lot of that stuff just goes completely out the window. Uh, In the US, there's these things called STIGs, um, security control documents. And so any work with the government, um, when you work with the government, uh, they have compliance teams that go through these stigs. And then you, these are just like long, long papers filled with like a hundred different things like rotate your passwords and, you know, show who ran this particular command and, you know, does this person have access to this? Do they have access to that? And just just so much crap that people have to go through and checklist. Um, and you know we've actually shown where, in some cases, like Stig eight hundred, for instance, um, that seventy percent of the controls listed in there just are not applicable in these environments because it enforces this kind of architecture. So it 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 makes it a lot lot easier.
1: Yeah, just to avoid what's going on ahead. And- Julian is making celebrations. <laughs>
2: yes, finally, yeah. no more, you know, spending hours explaining how things work or the, the question, if you implement the service mesh and then the, uh, you have the question, where is your firewall? Right. Yeah. Uh, you, have like a, you, you know, you're going to be there for a long yeah. time. So yeah. I, I think I, I like this idea of n- not having, like it's scary in a way, not having to control over mm-hmm. anything because we use it a certain way but somehow having something so tightly knit make it like a relief somehow it's like mm-hmm. yeah just we have the base and we have the code that is built on top and that's the only thing that yeah. changes. the rest is completely uh, like secure well though. so
3: you, you know one of the stories I tell was like when Linus released Linux in 91 92 almost 30 years ago um, it you know, the computer he was working on was like a 286 or a 386. Um, It was real hardware. (laughs) And he wanted, you know, it it was basically the same thing as Unix, right? So nothing like really changed architecturally. But this predates both virtualization in the form of like VMware and Citrix. It predates the cloud uh, in the form of AWS and stuff like that. And so it it was just kind of built for a different time period. Especially back then, we used to name the database Mars and, and the web server, Jupiter. And like, you know, we, we could literally give names to individual servers. And today it's just, it's impossible. Even smallest companies of like 20 people have tens or hundreds or thousands of VMs. I mean, like a company like Uber doesn't have one database, they have thousands of databases. And so the operating system in our view got kind of inverted. Um, we're, we, we can't run one operating system for a computer anymore. It just doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense um, because there's so much software out there today. And so what we're saying is like, okay, well, everybody's using virtualization either in the cloud or on-prem or wherever. So what we really need is a system that can kind of isolate each individual application. And then we force the, the operating system part onto the cloud. And let them deal with those problems, you know? So that's kind of that's kind of the, the thinking behind it.
0: So. But, but you have like some focusing tool that you can use to like deploy different images to different cloud providers and those sort of things.
1: But look, Matthias, now yeah. you use all of existing primitives. Like on AWS, you would use other scaling groups. But after yeah. scaling groups, will be your orchestrator, and like launch them. Yeah, but
0: I maybe have different applications, and then I can say, okay, like, hey, this is my web app, this is my backend. I want to share them and like do like build a new one to have some orchestrating tool for that, for helping, like get an overview of the services running. How many instances of this is from right now? Mm-hmm. I want to log into hey, AWS and have a look. I uh, did see so you have some Kubernetes endpoints, you can then spin up VMs, but is that some way you can go to like start migrating over or do some other tools?
3: Yeah, yeah, so like um, you know, if you deploy to Amazon you can say, hey, I want um, you know, stick everything in this VPC and you know, if uh, say I have a web server that I want to, uh, you know, front end with a load balancer, um, you know, I say spin up five five instances of this type and stick it behind in this ELB. Um, and so that's, that, that's where that comes into place. If you want like more control, like uh, you know, if, if you want to do more stuff at that kind of API junction point, you know, spin up a hub proxy or Nginx, you treat that as your reverse proxy. And then at that point you can kind of script to your heart's content to, you know, put in the, the metric and health points and all that good stuff. <laughs>
0: Okay, uh, but I think with that we have to wrap up this. Yeah, it's, it's quite quite and a yeah, long process
1: to <laughs> <laughs> go through, and I guess people who listen to this one, their their head might be exploding when you get all of <laughs> this information
2: once. Yeah. But uh, if someone wants to reach out uh, to you yeah where, where where can you? Reach yeah
3: uh GitHub um any of our like I said all of the software is open source um so GitHub's great if you have a code question there's forms uh forms.nanovms.com. so if you just have general questions um that's a great thing
1: we're on Twitter LinkedIn uh other socials so so yeah <laughs> Yeah, there is also a website for the tool that we've been talking about. It's ops.ct. Yep. I did I didn't want to pay however millions for ops.com.
2: <laughs> so ops. <laughs> 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 yeah,
1: yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, we will get all those links into the show notes.
0: We will do, we do. Yeah. But I think with that we will end this podcast. Thank you Ian for coming in and talking and thank you guys for an-
3: Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys.
1: You have been listened to the DevSecOps podcast with Matthias Andre and Julian. For more podcasts and notes, go to the webpage devsecops.fm. Thanks for tuning in.